Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When Diplomacy Fails presents... Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hey guys, welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hello and welcome to Hello When Diplomacy Fails. Hello and welcome fails. to When Diplomacy Fails. A project five years in the making. The Franco-Prussian War. The Seven Years War. Of the When Diplomacy Fails special on Napoleon. The Crimean War. To When Diplomacy Fails special on World War I. The Dutch Revolt. To the When Diplomacy Fails special on the Thirty Years' War. The July Crisis Anniversary Project. The Swedish Deluges. Britain goes to war. The 1916. To the Franco-Dutch War of 1672. This is When Diplomacy Fails. Remastered. This is the first part of When Diplomacy Fails' remastered look at the first Italo-Ethiopian War, which originally aired as one episode on the 24th of December, 2012. You're very welcome to the podcast. So, when I set myself the task of building towards the First World War five years ago, with a load of background episodes, I wanted to ensure that I covered the obscure wars above all, because these were the ones which historians and fans of history alike tend to overlook when examining why that war broke out, or the world itself that housed the war in 1914, in other words, the context of that era. The first Italo-Ethiopian war was one of those wars. It had always fascinated me because the scramble for Africa granted the entirety of the continent to Europe, until Italy tried, charged as it was with the years of nationalistic expectation, to bring the final piece of the puzzle in Africa, the ancient empire of Abyssinia, into its fold. The abject failure of the Italian effort here profoundly wounded the Italian sense of pride, and compelled its government to lash out in the future, in the hope that further imperial ventures would distinguish it from its rivals. In 1911, Italy invaded Libya with this goal in mind. The aim of obscuring the failures in Ethiopia foremost among the additional desire Rome had to establish a new empire in Africa's north. The invasion of Libya was a technical success, eventually that is, 
but it did facilitate the downfall of the Ottoman Empire in the process. Don't forget the Ottomans were the protector of Libya at this time. And the reason why this was the case was because it basically distracted the Ottomans and tore them into too many directions so that the Balkan states were able to take advantage, which they did in a series of wars that erupted the summer after the invasion of Libya took place. During the course of the Balkan Wars that ripped through southeast Europe, the status quo in the region was massively upset. It also created a whole new host of very serious problems for the empires that bordered these regions, such as Austria-Hungary. To blame Italy for what followed, not just its invasion of Libya, but also the Balkan Wars, in other words the First World War, is of course unfair, but it did demonstrate the interconnected nature of the world at that time. In a sense, the wars and conflicts which we have covered flowed from the Italian invasion of Libya, which itself only really took place because of the disaster in Ethiopia. With such ideas in mind, and with my end goal to connect everything for you five years ago, I set to my task to get the last pre-First World War special episode out before the year 2012 ended, and my First World War special began in January of 2013. Up to that point, my run of podcasting had been somewhat impressive. Since May that year, I had released episodes 1 to 18, and I'd had a ball of a time getting to grips with the incredible new hobby that I had now developed. I still had, and obviously do have, a lot to learn with this, and indeed the original version of this episode has often come under fair criticism for its wonky structure, or its complete lack of structure really, and above all its poor production values. In future, I know never to try and rush out an episode on Christmas Eve, so here I am ready to rectify that, and ready as a result to present to you guys the final remastered episode of this exciting period in When Diplomacy Fails. I for one really enjoyed preparing all this content for you, and your feedback and support and everything else has been so overwhelmingly supportive and just genuinely nice. I don't even know where to begin. From the sometimes emotional trips down memory lane to the invaluable opportunities I had to learn from my own mistakes to the times I got to see how far I've come as a historian and person, I really want to thank you guys. I'm so glad I did all this, and I hope that all of you will stick with When Diplomacy Fails as we embark on the rest of our exciting journey through the best and worst of history. To celebrate, I'm not even going to tell you to go to Patreon. I'm just going to say, enjoy this episode, guys. Thanks so much for sticking with us for the last five years, and and hey, I hope you'll stick with us for the next five. So thanks very much as I take you to the year 1880. I hate imperialism, I detest colonialism, and I fear the consequences of their last bitter struggle for life. We are determined that our nation and the world as a whole shall not be the plaything of one small corner of the world. Sukarno, the first Indonesian president. The aftermath of the Russo-Turkish War of 1877 had opened up a whole host of wounds between Germany and Russia. Russia, feeling betrayed by Bismarck's apparent turnaround in foreign policy, began to drift away from the warmth that the alliance between Russia and Germany had previously enjoyed. Russia would, for the moment at least, remain an ally of Germany, but only because there was no other available options open to it. Otto von Bismarck, meanwhile, began to move even closer to Austria out of this necessity, but he also further committed Germany to its alliance with Italy as another precautionary measure. The idea being, 
If Russia changed its tune too dramatically and sided with France, Germany wouldn't have such a cause for concern. That said, though, it was blatantly obvious that the 1880s were going to be a challenging decade for Bismarck's plans. Already he was hearing even stronger calls than before from those in important German lobby groups that wanted Germany to try its hand at empire building, most particularly in Africa. The eventual decision by Bismarck to allow the lobbyists to have their way in this respect made up just another part of Europe's scramble for Africa. And while Germany came to the game late in comparison to the rest of Europe, Bismarck was not content to settle for the leftovers. France, Britain, Belgium, Portugal, Spain, Germany and Italy were all chopping little pieces of Africa up for themselves with the aims of imperialism and making their state great by acquiring more African clay leading the charge for overseas colonies. For states like Britain, Africa was nothing new as an imperial venture. However, Britain's sudden takeover of Egypt in 1880 accelerated the pace by which every other European nation acted, since nobody wanted to be left behind in the race. Germany was an inexperienced, and some might say reluctant, participant in the scramble, but its successes would later move Bismarck to call for the Berlin Conference of 1884, which of course we've encountered before, and which we'll examine in more detail later on. The French saw the scramble purely as a means to re-establish national pride after their shattering war with Germany in 1870. This inspiration would grant France the second largest empire in Africa, but it also would bring Paris into conflict with London later, and, crucially for this episode, Italy as well. The French annexation of Tunisia in 1881 was a massive blow to Italian imperialists, as they had long viewed the small African country, positioned literally opposite its home soil in North Africa, and the ancient home of Carthage as well, as within its determined sphere of influence. Italian fortunes had a long history of being unwittingly tied to the fortunes of others. In 1870, for example, the French were forced to pull their troops out of Rome. These forces had been stationed there to protect the papal supremacy in that city, and they were a byproduct themselves of Napoleon III's Italian policy, more specifically his attempts to pander to Catholics. Seizing the opportunity, though, once the French troops had left, the Italian troops that had failed to capture Rome in years gone by now occupied it and pronounced it the Italian capital of a unified Italy in the same year that France was falling to the German invasion. The unification of Italy along economic, political and social lines is far too complex a story to get into here, and the great thing about remastering this whole episode is that, since I've last visited this era, a podcast has popped up which examines the entire period in history, and is either complete or very nearly complete by the time you're listening to this. If you want to know the whole story of how Italy came to be unified, make sure you check out the Ashwell Brothers podcast, which is called Talking History, The Italian Unification. It remains one of iTunes' highest rated podcasts, and the lads are great friends of the show, so go help them out. That again, Talking History, The Italian Unification. For those of you that want your story cut somewhat short, the Italian unification boils down to a movement known as the Risorgimento or resurgence of Italian prominence, culture and influence. Some argue that its origins lay in the years immediately after Napoleon's defeat, when Italians across the peninsula became drawn to the same nationalist ideas as their German neighbours to the north. In the 1840s, Italians began to reimagine the Italy that Europe had grown accustomed to for the past millennia. Though the Italians had always been renowned for their ancient pasts, 
Italy in the centuries since had become the playchild of larger empires on its borders. The French, the Austrians, or the Spanish at all played their role in this Italian playground. Not since the Roman Empire had Italy really enjoyed anywhere near the same kind of relevance, power or prestige as its neighbours, and it is perhaps no coincidence that during this time there was a revival in interest in Italy's ancient history as well. Societies often looked to their past for inspiration, and through this vein Italians were able to realistically believe that Italy could rise from its irrelevance and political stagnation and become a leading force in Europe. Thus the 1840s and 50s saw attempts by leading Italian figures such as Camillo de Cavour, Giuseppe Garibaldi and King Victor Emmanuel II to mould the early liberal ideas of Italy into a modern state. These figures would later gain the titles Fathers of the Fatherland, so yeah, they must have done a pretty good job. They were greatly helped by the political chaos of Italy that ensued after the 1848 revolutions. After that, which as we have seen left practically no European state unscarred, the Italians were greeted by a new king, Victor Emmanuel II, who assumed his role in 1849 after his father Victor Emmanuel I had abdicated. Victor Emmanuel II was a king of Sardinia, a kingdom which encompassed not just the island, but also the mainland cities of Nice, Savoy and Genoa. The region that jutted up into France's south and also held some modern-day Italian land was referred to as the Piedmont, and has a rich history dating back to medieval times. It has popped up on numerous occasions in our podcasts, though I've often called it different things, ranging from Piedmont to Piedmont to whatever I really feel like pronouncing it like at the time. You know me, and you love me for it, don't lie. But whatever I called it, or however I pronounced it, it always encompassed the Duke of Savoy's ancestral possessions with its ancestral capital at Turin. Forged in the fires of war as the Kingdom of Piedmont-Sardinia in 1720, in many ways this kingdom was the primary director of Italian policy, so it may help to imagine it as the Prussia of Italy. Victor Emmanuel II was important because, unlike his father, he was resolutely committed to unification under Sardinian direction. He employed Camillo de Cavour as his prime minister, and he utilised the talents of Giuseppe Garibaldi as his commander-in-chief, both of whom had been in exile for their revolutionary and liberal views. In the Crimean War, from 1854 to 56, at least in the Franco-British-Sardinian experience, Sardinia was persuaded to send a contingent to help the Allies, partly because Camilo de Cavour, the Prime Minister, believed that a significant contribution by his country in the war would help him gain support for Sardinia's expansion with the help of Britain and France. However, the real chance for support came from Napoleon III of France, who received a plea from Felice Orsini reminding him that So long as Italy is not independent, the peace of Europe and your majesty is but an empty dream. Set my country free and the blessings of 25 million people will follow you everywhere and forever. Unfortunately for Orsini, though, he had been caught trying to assassinate Napoleon III, so, yeah, he was executed. But this reminder to Napoleon III would inspire him to focus his international attention on Piedmont Sardinia and Victor Emmanuel II. Both Napoleon III's France and Cavour's Piedmont Sardinia began to cooperate closely over the coming months. Napoleon, because he wanted Italian unification to be part of his legacy, and Cavour because he wanted to increase Piedmontese power in northern Italy. For both of these states, Austria lay at the centre of their problems. From 1859 to 70, 
Piedmont and its allies went to war in the name of Italy three times, eventually capturing Rome as we saw in the end game that occurred in 1870. To give the conflicts a bit more context, the so-called Second Italian War of Independence lasted only three months, from April to July of 1859, and yet Cavour was able to peel off parts of Lombardy and a number of the central Italian states into the Piedmontese-Sardinian fold. It was into this period of Piedmontese-Sardinian expansion that the great figures of Italy were immortalised. Cavour for his political direction, Giuseppe Garibaldi for leading the Piedmontese soldiers during the war, and Victor Emmanuel II for making it all possible. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Allows their king. While their efforts in the Franco-Italian wars against Austria weren't especially inspiring, it was what occurred down south in Italy's other significant polity that proved truly significant. It was back down south that the Kingdom of the Two Sicilies, which encompassed Sicily and Naples, pretty much the bottom part of the Italian boot and Sicily, was having a much harder time of things. A remnant of the Bourbon dynasty in the centre of the Mediterranean, the Two Sicilies was lagging behind its northern Italian neighbour once the 1848 revolutions came about. The way in which the Bourbon king Ferdinand II repressed the calls for reform, isolated his country diplomatically, and began to alienate his people further, who endured famines and outbreaks of cholera between 1850 and 55. Additionally, it became clear that the Two Sicilies was living in its northern neighbour's shadow in the area of diplomacy too, as John A. Davis in his book, Italy in the 19th Century, explains. In the other crucial area of government policy, international diplomacy, Ferdinand II met with a series of setbacks as well. Here too he found himself consistently outflanked by Piedmont. In this, as in other ways, the Bourbon government was to prove no match for the Piedmontese Prime Minister Camilo de Cavour. The turning point came in the Crimean War, when the Naples government favoured its traditional links with Russia, and refused to cooperate with the Anglo-French alliance. 
The subsequent breakdown of the conservative alliance between Austria and Prussia, and the growing diplomatic isolation of Austria, the closest ally of the two Sicilies, left Ferdinand II in serious difficulty. He severed diplomatic relations with France and Britain when, at the Congress of Paris in 1856, both the French Foreign Minister, Count Walewski, and the British Foreign Secretary, Lord Clarendon, denounced the repression and despotism of the Naples administration. The declining international standing of the two Sicilies was mirrored in the growing reputation of Piedmont Sardinia. The decline of the two Sicilies was to become further pronounced over the following years, entering crisis mode by the end of the 1850s. In a sort of unofficial war, the legendary general Garibaldi was persuaded by future Italian Prime Minister Francesco Crispi to lead 1,000 Italian volunteers from the north into the south and land on Sicily's coast in support of the revolution against the Bourbon monarchy that had been ongoing for the past few years. In short, Garibaldi's moves were a startling success. He moved the Bourbon forces out of Sicily itself, and he was soon moving towards Naples in early 1860. Bourbon soldiers crumbled before him, preferring to join his cause rather than fight against what they had begun to see as the greatest chance that Italians had for a unified state. Garibaldi promised all peasants land as a reward as he marched, and soon he had enough of an army to take Naples itself, which he did in September 1860. It was a stunning feat by Garibaldi, but not everyone was so pleased. While he was preparing to move on Rome at the head of his populist army, Cavour was busy back in Piedmont, Sardinia, trying to capitalise on the situation. Cavour's major concern, though, revolved around the influence of Giuseppe Mazzini, a key figure in the process of what was called Italian unification under Rome, an idea which Cavour was not yet entirely comfortable with. Cavour believed that if Garibaldi reached Rome, he would identify with Mazzini and seek to unify the peninsula under Roman rule, and thus he moved to prevent this and restore Piedmontese authority by moving his own troops down to Rome. In October 1860, a plebiscite was held to determine the future of southern Italy, and the majority voted to unite with the north under Piedmontese domination. Cavour had been able to outmaneuver Garibaldi by exploiting the disunity of the southern rebels and promoting unity under Piedmont Sardinia as the best way to ensure Italian supremacy. Piedmont Sardinia thus unified Italy along its own rules, with its own set of reforms ready for implementation and with its own monarch, Victor Emmanuel II. It was an Italy which was at least semi-unified, although it was pretty much all under the direction and control of the North, and it still excluded the Papal States, though it was this freshly bound Italian kingdom that increasingly attempted to manoeuvre itself into positions of international prominence in the 1860s, starting with its first opportunity for gain, the Austro-Prussian War of 1866. Victor Emmanuel's importance during the course of these events cannot be understated. It seems like practically all of Italy's essential political figures were in exile during the reign of his father, and could only return to their homeland and in the process mould their homeland, due to Victor Emmanuel II's comparative liberalism and long-sighted goal of Italian unification. Perhaps because unification was by no means a universal goal for those that lived in Piedmont Sardinia, the ringing similarities with Prussia are present again. Just like with Prussia's goals with respect to Germany, Piedmont would change its aims from simple dominance in the Italian peninsula into the actual unification of Italy under its banner. Unlike Prussia, though, it wouldn't achieve this under a single chancellor or prime minister, like there would be no Bismarck in Italy. 
In the same year that Camilo de Cavour died, 1861 in fact, before it was fully unified, the landscape of Italian politics changed in a dramatic way. Victor Emmanuel II had proclaimed himself king not merely of Piedmont Sardinia, but of the entire Italian peninsula on the 17th of March, 1861. Having extended its reach over its former rival down south and consolidated its hold on the north, Victor Emmanuel II's kingdom would have a strong claim on the idea that it had reincarnated Italy as a united kingdom for the first time in living memory, but not all the impressions were rosy. For one, there was the issue of Italy's disappointing performance in the Austro-Prussian War, a war which Italy participated in only five years after coming under Victor Emmanuel's monarchy. The failures by the Italians delayed the desire many possessed for Rome, but they also exposed cracks in the Piedmontese Italian regime. Unfortunately, so little known was the Italian contribution, or its significance therein, that most merely see the Austro-Prussian War as the natural progression of Bismarck's policy, and to an extent that that's true, but we should also remember that Italy waged war against Austria as part of a wider deal with Prussia. Italy received Venetia and with it some national pride, but Italy did not take Venice back from Austria, nor could Italy's navy defeat Austria's in the sea battles around the peninsula. Venice was handed to France as part of a mediation deal, and Rome remained out of Italy's grasp owing to the French presence in the city. So all in all, it was a fairly deflating experience for the Italians, and the remainder of the 1860s, concluding with the seizure of Rome in 1870, should have symbolised a crowning achievement in Italian nationalism, but instead it was a dull and unremarkable event, notably bereft of the same poetry or nationalistic vigour that Germany enjoyed. Perhaps the reason for this lacklustre but still technically successful result was the disunited nature of the country in the 1860s. The image of the north of Italy as the powerhouse, with the south as its backwater, had been established and really never erased in the late 1850s, and ever since then Italians had disagreed as to the best way to utilise their joint resources. Italy should have seen the outpouring of nationalistic pride that Germany saw in 1871, when the German states historically acknowledged the Prussian king's supremacy in the House of Versailles. Why wasn't Victor Emmanuel II able to ignite the passions of all Italians, as the now Kaiser Wilhelm had done? The answer is surprisingly psychological. Having received Rome from a retreating France and having received Venice from a defeated Austria, there was no defining unifying event in Italian nationalism, no symbol for Italians to hold on to, and crucially, no leader capable of leading the country through the turmoil that it endured after its unification. Added to the limp anticlimax, further causes for concern abounded in the person of the Pope, because he refused to recognise the Italian state so long as it occupied Rome and the papacy said it would excommunicate any Italian Catholic who would participate politically in the unlawful, as it sought, Italian regime. So as Italy limped into the 1870s, it carried with it rural, administrative, social, economic and governmental baggage that would have challenged even the most capable of statesmen. Italy's north, while industrialised and certainly capable of effective production and economic prosperity, was nearly crippled due to its position as the supporter of the South, which had become inefficient, unproductive and dangerous to travel in alone at night. The disparity between the two sides of Italy was startling, and in economic terms provides one of the easiest ways to explain why Italy never realised the potential that so many had imagined for it, 
as a unified country in the early 1800s. An excerpt from Francesco Crispi, Prime Minister of Italy from 1887 to 1896, summed up the situation accurately when he wrote of the plights of his hometown in the southern constituency of Tricarico in 1875, saying, I will not describe to you the shouting, the swearing, and the tears. All I will say is that the Italian government is cursed and hated, and if brigandage were to break out again, could we hold it against them? And if they overturn Italy's unity, should we dare punish them? It is enough to make you despair. What has the government done to bring civilization here and win the friendship of the population? Nothing. As Italy struggled with its social problems into the late 1870s, it began to involve itself more heavily in international affairs. It was, due to its geographic position, a potentially invaluable ally for a desperate France or a devastating wildcard on the other hand as an ally of Germany. In efforts to distract itself, perhaps from its domestic problems, the one area which Italian opinion could be swung on was the question of colonies, most notably in Tunisia. Because it was as early as 1871 that Italy had sent an expedition into Tunisia with the aim of annexing it and taking a firm step in the direction of creating an Italian empire in Africa. But France would get there first. At the Congress of Berlin in 1878, though the powers there talked mainly about the Balkans, Britain agreed to acknowledge the French claims to Tunisia in exchange for French recognition of British designs on Cyprus. This informal agreement, of course, left Italy way out in the cold, and was the deciding factor in Italy's new direction in policy. In 1881, the Treaty of Bardo established Tunisia as a French protectorate, which was, of course, a polite word for colony, and the year after Italy cut its losses and entered into the Triple Alliance with Germany and Austria. It appears to us like a decision made in the heat of the moment, and that's because it was. But as John A. Davis explains, the cost of the Triple Alliance for Italy was perhaps a higher price to pay than it was worth. He wrote, First, Italy was obliged to renounce its irredentist claims against Austria. Second, it was driven into higher defence spending. And third, perhaps the most important, it lost the freedom to manoeuvre between rival European powers that had traditionally been seen as so advantageous, indeed almost essential, given the country's economic and military weakness and its geographical vulnerability. A further cause for concern was that Italy was now bound to an alliance which, although it was in its nature defensive, meant that previous foreign policies of Italian statesmen dating back as far as the early 19th century with respect to London were now almost guaranteed to run into problems. Britain had always been favourable towards Italian national ambitions, much like in the case of Greece as well, and although they may have been apprehensive about Italian designs on Africa, London did require a certain level of cooperation from Italy, due, if only, to Britain's position in the Mediterranean. This worked both ways, of course, because Italy's minuscule navy couldn't hope to repel any determined attacks along its coastline from a power whose influence had saturated the Mediterranean Sea. Just for the record, the Italian idea that the Mediterranean was their sea hadn't yet materialised, as it would decades later with Mussolini's grand claim that the Mediterranean basin was Il Nostro Mare, or Our Sea. At this point, then, there was no shame in Italy's recognition or acceptance of Britain's position in the Mediterranean as immovable, certainly without the support of any other primary naval powers such as France or Russia. 
so the decision to cooperate and establish cordial relations with Britain was made out of necessity, and it was a policy that had continued for decades and only increased as Britain's possessions and power grew. This comes back to what John A. Davis mentioned about Italy tying itself down. Because although at this stage we have to keep in mind that the armed camps which would participate in the First World War had yet to materialise properly, Britain was very much isolated from European dealings, and there was still a very real Italian fear that whatever this Triple Alliance led to, should Britain emerge on the opposite side of them on the battlefield or indeed on the sea, it would result in an Italian catastrophe. At the same time, though, the Triple Alliance did offer a measure of revenge and assurance against France, perhaps the only true issue which Italy was now sure of. Germany's alliance offer was the best chance for Italy to revenge itself on the state that had taken Tunisia out from under its nose when it wasn't even ready. Italian foreign policy thus couldn't reconcile itself with Britain, at least not fully, if Britain were to ally itself with France. But as we know very well, Britain hadn't done this by the 1880s and she showed no signs of doing so as the old Anglo-French antagonism ensured that the two countries still butted heads over imperialist claims several times at the close of the 19th century, which in turn gave Italians reason to hope that there would be no reason for Britain and Italy to come to blows, even while they tied their young kingdom even tighter to the bonds of alliance with their immediate neighbours. The great and incredible dream of the Risorgimento, it seemed, demanded that risks be taken and great sacrifices be made. For the sake of Italy, war would have to be braved. In the next episode, we'll examine if this risk was worth it, or if the Triple Alliance was truly worth the security that Italy received, not to mention the all-important question of how such schemes led to the Italians making war without too much thought on an apparently unimpressive kingdom on the ancient hills of Ethiopia. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 